Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Amir Engel. I'm the chair of the German Department at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. I'm also currently a visiting professor at the Humboldt University in Berlin. And today I'm talking to Yanif Fella on his 2023 book, The Jewish Imperial Imagination, Leo Beck and German-Jewish Thought. Yaniv, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Amir. Great to be here. It's great to have you. Perhaps before we start talking about the book, you could tell us a, a little bit about yourself maybe a little bit about your career trajectory, and then finally, a few words perhaps about how you got into the topic and what led you to write about Leobeck and his story. Sure. So as should be clear from the accent, I'm Israeli. I did my bachelor and master's at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. For my master's, I actually worked on Martin Buber, and that's already a premonition of the interest in German-Jewish thought. I then moved to do a PhD in Toronto, not before a second stint as a visiting student in Berlin. And while I was a visiting student there, I took a class called the Jewish Berlin, which every week we would go to a a different Jewish site and talk about it and so on. I think Klaus Herrmann was the instructor. And one week we stood in front of the Leo Beck house and I thought to myself in the Holzkirchstrasse, and I thought to myself, well, this is interesting. I think of myself as someone who works on German-Jewish philosophy. I heard the name Leo Beck. I never actually read Leo Beck. And I discovered that it's actually quite common that many, many people haven't read Leo Beck. So, uh, so that's kind of what led me initially both to writing a dissertation on Beck and then uh, after, after the dissertation I worked as a curator at the Jewish Museum Berlin, before moving to be the German Israeli assistant professor at Wesleyan University. And now uh, I'm an assistant professor of religion and Jewish studies at the Bud Shorstein Center at the University of Florida. So during all those uh, moves and rounds, the project really morphed into many, many different ways and trajectories in how I think about Beck and about the meaning of Beck in thinking about Jewish philosophy. Excellent. Thank you so much. So let's start one step before even actually discussing your thesis and your book, just to set the stage. Who is Leo Beck? What is he known for today? And how is he mostly treated in the literature? That's a great question. So maybe we'll start with the end. There are so many Leo Beck annals and institutions. There's the Leo Beck Institute in New York and in Jerusalem and in London, and it has a branch in affiliated with the Jewish Museum Berlin's archives, and there's the Leo Beck Medal, and there's the Leo Beck Prize, and there's the Leo Beck Temple in Los Angeles and Buenos Aires, and there's Leo Beck Day Schools in Haifa uh, and in other places. So if you just ask people, oh, in terms of this is a sign that someone is very important, it's clear that Beck was very important for people. But if you actually look at how much has been written about him in the literature, 
it's not a lot, which is what was one of my main motivations in actually trying to think about in both in terms of intellectual history, but also in terms of philosophy of religion. Uh, so who was this Leo Beck that we have so many institutions named after? He was born in 1873 in Lisa or Leshno. Uh, that's where he grew up in East Prussia. He starts his studies at the in Breslau at the rabbinical seminary there, or the conservative, uh, what we would call today conservative seminary before finishing. He moves to Berlin, where he finishes, as was common at the time, a dissertation at the University of Berlin under Wilhelm Dilthe, uh, along with his rabbinical ordination at the Lehranstalt or the Hochschule for Wissenschaft the Studentums. Uh, he receives his first appointment in Opel or Olde, which the names are important because they also show the transition between Poland and Germany, right? So Leshno and Lisa and Opel and Opel. And he writes, he really rises to fame shortly after receiving this job when he writes in 1905 a work called The Essence of Judaism. And that's a reply to the most important church historian of the era, Adolf Harnack, where the turn of the century publishes a work called The Essence of Christianity. We don't go into too much details because we want to talk about in more in more in a more detailed way. So so leave it open. Just just give us the more sure. kind of sure. So uh, uh, here's some career moves. He moves to Düsseldorf. He moves to uh, he returns to Berlin. He joins the army as a, a Feldrabiner or an army chaplain during World War One. In during the Weimar Republic, he becomes this major public intellectual. In 1933, when the Nazis come to power, he's, by most accounts, the only acceptable candidate to lead the Jewish umbrella organization, which I suspect we'll talk about. Uh, he's being transported, uh, deported to Theresienstadt in 1943, where he survives the war, the Theresienstadt ghetto. And after the war, he moves uh, to be with his daughter in London, and he dies in London in 1956. So that's kind of the brief overview. So we, we are looking at someone who's lived through multiple con constellations. So he's really, his life uh, is very much part of, of the story of, or he kind of witnesses a story of 20th century, late 19th century and early 20th century, first half of the 20th century in Central Europe and in Europe and even beyond that we'll talk about it a little more. The uh, introduction uh, and the title uh, refers us to this question of empire. Uh, the title of the book is um, The Jewish Imperial Imagination. I'm, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the relation and why do you think this question of empire is relevant um, to the story of Leo Beck and the formation of his thought. You discuss in that chapter also the Jewish question, which was a question debated a lot in the 19th century, as you describe. Uh, but you also note uh, another aspect of this, which I was less familiar with, that you call it the age of questions. There is the empire question and the colonial question and the question of the East and so forth. So tell us a little bit about the German empire and the age of questions and the Jewish question and how do you, why do you think it is a good framework to think about Leo Beck and his work, his life, and his trajectory. Oh, thank you. Yes, yeah, so I think part of what's going on uh, with Beck and why he's so interesting as a case study for German Jewish thought is precisely what you just mentioned. He lived through multiple 
imperial constellations. So he lived in uh, the Kaiserreich or the Wilhelmine Empire, uh, which in Jewish philosophy, I should say, most discussions about the politics really focus on it as a, as a more homogenous nation state. But of course, it was an empire. It was one of the largest in Europe in terms of land. It was one of the uh, largest in terms of population. So if you look at it this way, I think what happens is new questions emerge for Jewish thought, and it gives us a new sense of some things in backstory. So he lives through this era. He then lives through the Weimar Republic, which many of us who work in German Jewish studies or German studies, we tend to think of it as, oh, this very liberal, this very creative place. The Weimar Constitution also had a code for the restoration of economies, which they lost in World War One. So there was not a very strong, but there was an undercurrent that also dealt with the question of colonialism. It was what Marcia Klotz called a, a post-colonial state in a still colonial world, or something along those lines. Then, of course, the Nazism, you can think about it as the Third Reich, right, or the Third Empire, and the Nazi Empire, so that's another way of looking at it. And after the war, the question of the two superpowers. So his life really follows empires. So it gives us different ways into the way empires shaped his thought. And and once I understood that, I think I realized that it's a broader story in Jewish thought. As you mentioned, the Jewish question, the question about Jewish emancipation or the granting of Jewish rights, it was not done in isolation. And several scholars, uh, I mean, Mufti and Holy Case, which hold the age of questions, uh, they notice it, right? It's just one question out of many, but in Jewish thought, we often tend to it in isolation. So I was interested in the connection between this question and the colonial frage, or the question about whether Germany should have colonies, and if so, in what way and for what purpose. And these questions were emerging in the most heated form around the same time in the 1880s, so just when Beck was coming of age. So this is the age of German expansionism and Heinrich von Bülow's attempt to get Germany's place, as he called in the sun, right? We don't want to displace anyone, but we want our rightful place in the sun is what he said. So around the same this same time, also there are hundreds of pamphlets about the Jewish question. So once I realized there is this connection between the two questions, it made a lot of sense to read Beck's thought as it emerges, but also as it continues uh, along those two lines. And to try and think, what does it mean for a Jewish thinker who is a minority? to live in the age of empire. In what ways empire shaped Beck's thought, but also in what ways, as a minority in the empire, Beck's thought resists, adapts, adjusts to questions of empire. So let, let me push you just a little bit further on this. How, how does it actually shape Beck's thought? I mean, at least in the initial phase, what's what? how does Beck respond to the fact that he lives as a minority in an empire? So if we are looking at the initial phase, and as I said, maybe the one place to look at it is the essence of Judaism, because that's his first major work, and that's a work that's written at the height of the empire. So usually we read it just in light of his response to Adolf Harnack's uh, idea that Christianity or Protestantism, to be more accurate, is the more ethical religion. So if we read it this way, sure, then Harnack is saying Christianity is better, and that goes, no, actually... Judaism is better. But if we think about it in light of empire, then 
different set of questions emerges. For example, we start looking that very early on in the manuscript and in the end of the text, he writes about minorities and about the place of the Jews as a minority. So this view of ethics is tied to the idea of the Jewish minority. And he Wait, thinks this minority... is Hanak now or, or Beck? No, 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 this is, sorry, to clarify. So when Beck writes about the essence in the essence of Judaism, mm. he writes about minorities and he writes at the beginning that a minority is compelled to think. So he describes the creative power of he thinks of Jews as the paradigmatic minority, but he writes minority in general. Mm. Uh, and later he writes about uh, how Jews try to preserve their minority status. So instead of just understanding Beck as adapting some kind of very vague ethical monotheism or very standard ethical monotheism, we understand that this ethical monotheism is tied to ideas of empire in a twofold way. A, it's that Jews should treat more ethically than empire, but also that the way Jews are being treated is the yardstick for morality. Mm-hmm. And if we look at it, so that's one thing. Sorry, you want No, no, no. Go ahead. Just finish the uh, point. So some of the themes that emerge, for example, are this question of the minority. Another major theme that emerges is the question of Jewish missionizing, mm-hmm. which I know sounds bizarre to many people. And I've already, when I started presenting the book, in more, say, community settings, that's something that people who grew up with the idea of Jews don't missionize push back against, especially when it comes from someone like Leo Beck. But I think he's very explicit about the idea that Jews in antiquity have missionized and that they should missionize (laughs) in the present. And if we think about why, probably some of the things that are going on in the background is this idea of, oh, we want to expand both as part of the ethical monotheism, but also because ideas of missionizing an empire are very prevalent around his time in Germany. There are missionary exhibitions, the colonial exhibition while he's in Berlin. This is all in the air. Uh, And missionizing are, of course, part and parcel of the imperial project. So that's another way to look at the connection. Yeah, excellent. So it's fascinating, but I I want to step one, one step backwards still and go to Hanak, because as you said already, and you mentioned uh, uh, Beck is a response, a very famous response, maybe one of the most famous response to Hanak's really kind of standard work on the essence of Christianity, the mere, the mere uh, uh, ability to say, I'm going to explain to you now what the essence of Christianity is, quite, is quite a statement. Maybe you can set up the, 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 this discussion and say a few words about Hanak, about this work, and maybe maybe try to connect it also to the question of empire. I mean, how how is how is what is the relation between Hanak's sense of essence of Christianity related to his place under the sun, so to speak, as a, as a representative of the German uh, evangelic, evangelical, so Lutheran Lutheran Church in Germany at at the or German Empire at the time? Yeah. So Hanak in uh, the winter semester of 1900, is giving a series of public lectures, uh, which are called the essence of Christianity, and are uh, shortly after translate, uh, translated, published multiple languages. It really becomes, as far as theological historical texts go, a literary event, and it provokes hundreds of responses uh, from Protestant 
theologians, from Catholic theologians, and also from, uh, as you said, for many Jew- Jews. And the reason I think why Arnak is so provocative is because it touched an open air. It touched anxieties both among Jews and Christians about what does it even mean to be a religious person at the turn of the century, and what does the historical method does to thinking about religion. Because he's a church historian first and foremost. And Hamad believes that the essence of Christianity is to be found in the world of Jesus, kind of the historical Jesus, and it can be summed up as uh, the commandment of love, uh, God the Father, and the kingdom, uh, which has precedence, of course, in Protestant theology, Albert Fischer, and so on, but uh, but it really gives it a popular, concise formulation that comes with the authority of someone who wrote seven volumes on the history of dogma. <laughs> Uh, and of course, at that po- at that point in history, many liberal what we, what when I say liberal, I mean what we would call today reform, but that's their designation. And many liberal Jews saw in Judaism this type of ethical religion. Uh, so when Beck responds to Harnack, he does at least a twofold move. First, he claims that uh, Jesus was a Jew, which is a claim that Abraham Geiger started. Uh, as Susanna Hesher has shown, and kind of continues in the liberal tradition, and Beck definitely adapts this one. But what he also does, I think he really tries to also shift the terms of the debate. So if Harlach locates the essence, which was common at the time, in the genius of Jesus, so to speak, Beck insists that it's not one person. He's writing, if it's one person, if it's a Jesus, a Muhammad, a Buddha, the religion kind of rises and falls with the founder. But if it's a collective, he thinks first the prophets as a group and then the people of Israel, then it can adapt, then it can change. I should say that uh, one of the things that really irked uh, Jewish commentators on Harmak was, of course, that in order to highlight the originality of Jesus, he presented the Pharisees or the Jews in a very negative light. So he created this contrast between Jesus as the ethical paragon and the Pharisees is in the dark alleys of law, as he wrote. So Beck responds to that in multiple ways throughout his career, but his first two responses are one uh, in a more academic review than in the essence of Judaism. I need to push you again just a little bit further. That is Hanak, a, in your mind, a, um, a colonial imperial thinker? Mm, that's a good question. Well, or or he was... Maybe just, in what way is he? Maybe that's a better question. Uh, so, so, so there are at least two ways. One, he was, uh, even though he was very controversial among theologians uh, or, or certain theologians, uh, he was a state official. He was, you know, in the Prussian library and so on. So by definition, he is part of this apparatus. But in a more general sense, uh, one way in which we can think about these claims about colonization and empire are claims about a Christian colonization of Jews, meaning the idea that the Jew as an other of Christianity that needs to be superseded. And several scholars of Van Heschel and Jonathan Hess uh, Christian have shown how Christian Wiese, of course, so they all showed how this move has been done in the realm of scholarship. So Harnack is actually a letter, 
a later move in this regard. There's an earlier history of that in the 19th century, but he is one manifestation of this tendency to which Beck replies. I should say uh, that one of the things I am trying to do in uh, this work is also move away from uh, the important contribution of people like Heschel and Wiese, who suggested to read this type of uh, Jewish responses as counter-history, as kind of flipping the script or the narrative, using the tools of scholarship. And I think that's definitely the case in several instances, also in several instances in the case of Leo Beck. But what I think is also going on is that if we think about imagination as this more ambiguous category, we don't have to have this binary of either you are part of empire or you are resisting empire. Mm -hmm. Because as my discussion of Beck shows, it's a bit of both. There are moments where it takes on imperial ideas and there are moments where it clearly subverts certain perceptions of Judaism. And I think you can find both moments in the essence of Judaism. Interesting. So the German Empire finds itself, well, finds itself in a terrible war in 1914. In 1914, uh, and Leo Beck, as you already mentioned, uh, uh, joins the military, becomes a chaplain, service gives service uh, to Jewish soldiers and officers who also join uh, the army, and there is an entire history to be told about this. In your book, you read and kind of analyze, ad, analyze sorry, the sermons from the front. So th the question is exactly how does what does Leo Beck has to say about the war and about the Jewish soldier, a serviceman who serve at the war on the German side? So yes, surprisingly, for someone who served for four years, both a lot and little, to say. So for some aspects where we would have expected to find something, such as with regard to the infamous Judenzellung, to the Jew count of 1916, mm -hmm. I couldn't find any traces of it in the archives. And we should also say that the Feldrabiner disposition was not equivalent to the Christian chaplains. Mm -hmm. So their salary was paid by the Jewish community, uh, who I think even bought Beck's uniform. Uh, so he did receive rent and so on, and he, he attempted to present himself, and as many others did, as equals, but it wasn't a completely equal relationship. So what I think two things that emerge from Beck's writing during those four years. One is what we can call his view of the East, which was, again, a very common uh, to an extent, German colonial view that saw it as a space of expansion. He doesn't go as far as that, but he definitely has some description of the vast empty spaces, right? And when you compare it to his description from the West about the castles, I think, or maybe he doesn't say castles, but there are railroads and there are all sorts of other aspects. It seems uh, that the East is this empty space, which of course, to those of us in the North American context, it's a bit like the Wild West. So Christine Kopp wrote about Germany's Wild East. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think some of his descriptions sort of resemble this point. And what he also does, he's, he speaks about the Germans at time, especially early on, in language that is resembling of the language he spoke about the Jews as a minority. Mm -hmm. So now it is the Germans who are like the Maccabees 
fight in sermon for Hanukkah and Hanukkah of course as this uh, was easily militarized or the, the holiday offers itself to be militarized uh, so he definitely writes this type of moments making allusions uh, to scriptures along the way uh, so there are those moments both of patriotism and of thinking about the East and thinking about the East once again helps us see that it is not just a national question this is not just national patriotism, but there was something else going on here in the dialectic between nation, state, and empire. Mm-hmm. Interesting. We move now to actually what is a, perhaps the toughest kind of moment in Leobeck's history, and this is the period before the war and then the slow rise of uh, Nazism in Germany. Leobeck becomes a major figure, a major pub- public figure, and a, later in the 30s, as you mentioned already, a, a, the leader of uh, the Jewish community. Tell us about these years, uh, about uh, Leobeck's trajectory and about his work during the period. Yes, so I admit this is the hardest part of the story to tell. In fact, I don't think I was initially ready for it. So in my dissertation, I didn't touch this period at all. Uh, and I wasn't ready for it, both on the emotional sense, but also in the analytical sense where I didn't know what framework to bring into the discussion. And I think having this idea of the empire is really helpful for thinking about this period as well. So in the book, I divide it to three parts. So maybe I will answer about the first one or two, and you can ask follow-up questions if there are more clarification. So the first period I'm interested in is the period from the rise of Nazism to about shortly after the Nuremberg laws, give or take. And this is a period that I call in the chapter vulnerable existence. And it's vulnerable existence because this is the term Beck uses in his writing. So my interest wasn't just in the political actions, because there have been good biographies of Beck. Leonard Baker wrote a Pulitzer award-winning biography, Michael Meyer, recently published uh, an excellent biography. But what I'm interested in is how is his philosophy and ideas of empire tied to it? Uh, And what I found is not just that there's a strong connection between the religious thought and the political thought, but also that some concerns, some earlier concerns, resurfaced in the 30s. So our previous discussion was about the Jewish minority in the world, now Beck writes about it or gives lectures about it uh, in a text, for example, called The Existence of the Jew, uh, which he thinks, okay, what does it mean to be a Jew in the world? And he says, oh, to be a Jew is to always be surrounded. He uses the word survive. Uh, so, so he really thinks about, he doesn't describe anti-Semitism explicitly in this world, but he thinks about this type of what causes the perception that Jews are dangerous or numerous. Uh, so that's aspect of any thought that was present earlier, but that now receives this new accentuation because the imperial conditions have changed. There are texts to suggest that Beck tried to come to terms uh, with the ongoing situation, but again, these are shifting sands, right? So he writes, for example, that uh, if the national revolution is about regeneration of Germany, and the rejection of Bolshevism, then Jews can get on board with it, so to speak. 
or he gives it, it's actually complicated because he gives it in an interview, but it's not clear if the interview itself was ever published just in the Jewish newspapers later. Uh, and I think that's consistent again with his view, uh, both on what Judaism is and on the pragmatics of Jewish existence in this period. Perhaps his most famous act, uh, which is tied to this idea of the Jewish minority, uh, in the world, perhaps his most famous act of resistance is a, a Hilton brief or a pastoral letter. It's commonly referred to as Leo Beck's Colony Bray prayer from 1935, Yom Kippur. Uh, it's not so long after the Nuremberg laws have passed. And in it, it's a very short text. And in it, Beck basically calls to Jews a uh, to stand first in front of God. Uh, and this in front of God is something that he also talked about in his text about Jewish existence, is this idea that Jews are not just locked in what's going on here. They have a relation to this higher power that gives them hope and it gives them steadfastness that allows them to survive those difficult times. The Gestapo clearly understood that this is a, a subversive text, there's a telegram that calls to destroy all copies. We don't know if and how it was read uh, in the synagogues. I couldn't find evidence. Uh, it was probably not widespread. Uh, and Beck was arrested for it and released after a couple of days. So, so that's one moment, again, that it's not just spiritual resistance. I think we should understand it in light if you kind of, I offer a close reading of it and a lot of the themes that he started developing as early as 1905 and continued to develop, are getting different emphases, but they are still uh, they are still there in the text. It's hard to imagine actually being a Jewish leader in a tougher time. I mean, this is probably one of the hardest uh, missions a leader can can have is to lead his uh, his people through well life threatening this kind of the the threat of annihilation. Uh, 1938, November 1938, the famous pogroms that go through through Germany also marks a turning point in the uh, relationship of Germany towards the Jews. Uh, you write you you write about uh, the period, and you write about a, a strange manuscript. Uh, it doesn't have a name and was never published. That was written under very unique circumstances. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the circumstances and about the text. And why did it uh, never, why was it never published? Well, so maybe before that, it would be helpful just to kind of take a step back uh, and to follow your initial comment. And yes, yeah, so Beck heads an organization called the, initially in 1933, the Reichsvertretung der Deutschen Juden. Then the organization has to change its name to Reichsvertretung der Juden in Deutschland, because they are no longer allowed to call themselves German Jews. And after the November programs known as Kristallnacht, uh, it's being changed into the Reichsvereinigung. So now it's a state-controlled organization. And Beck continues to head the organization. Uh, there's some evidence that Beata Meyer suggests that when it comes to the deportations later, he's not as active as perhaps one uh, would think from the head of an organization. He becomes mostly a symbolic figure, but that's definitely the most contested uh, part of his legacy. And that's the, that's the part also that led Hannah Arendt, of course, 
to infamously uh, call him on the pages of the New York uh, reporting from the Eichmann trial, to call him the Jewish Führer in this combination of uh, English and German. And it's something that uh, in the very famous, since you're a Sholem scholar, in the very famous letter that Sholem writes her about uh, how she has no love of Israel, no Avat Israel, he also explicitly calls her on that. And he says, to call back the Jewish Führer, that's unacceptable. Beck is, of course, dead at this point. Uh, and interestingly enough, she leaves her critique of Beck, but she deletes this expression in subsequent editions because potentially even she recognized that this was going too far. Yes, yeah, so again, because I'm interested in the connection between the religious and the political, I mean, is Beck's writing from the time? There is this manuscript that Beck mentioned shortly before his death in 1955 and in, in the late 1940s, so after the war. And he made it sound as if it was written for some kind of German conservative resistance. And there's some evidence that he was in touch with people from the resistance, such as Karl Gordler. Uh, but it raises more questions than answers. Why would they ask this type of text? So the text is is a massive manuscript. So we are talking about more than 1,200 pages uh, with the title at least that's inscribed is catchy title. It's the development of the legal position of the Jews or the legal status of the Jews in Europe, primarily in Germany, from antiquity until the Enlightenment. Very catchy. And it actually goes, yeah, very catchy. And it actually goes further. So it actually goes uh, all the way to the present, the 19, 1930. Uh, and it's five volumes and are only three surviving copies, one in the Prague Military Archive, the other is in the Leo Beck Institute, which was Beck's copy. And then there's another one, I believe, in the Jewish Museum Frankfurt, or at the Frankfurt Jewish Community. Uh, and, uh, and it's a question, why would Beck write this type of text, right? And I think Beck's commentators and friends and colleagues really grappled with it. And in 2001, Hermann Simon published documents known as uh, Descartes, I guess, or uh, files uh, from the Jewish community of Berlin's archives, which showed that this type of work was discussed with SS officers uh, in the 1940s, so in the early 1940s. So later than Beck said he wrote the text, and also definitely not text of resistance. So some people are trying to say, well, we can't really decide between uh, the two narratives. I think the evidence is significant enough that it was written for a Nazi administration, a guy by the name of Zul. Now, why would Zul want such a text? There are all sorts of ways of thinking about it. He was concerned with legal positions of Jews, so he might have had interest in general. We know that Nazis... Uh, throughout Europe, used Jews to write research that they then took as their own. Uh, so I think one helpful way of looking at this manuscript, which Beck uh, co-authored with Leopold Lucas and uh, Hilde Ottenheimer, is, a, is a, a document of intellectual forced labor. And again, there are parallels if you think about the people in Prague that had to sort through Jewish Judaica, and later became the Jewish Museum in Prague, uh, that's a similar enterprise. If you think about the Vilna and the Paper Brigade, that's another similar enterprise. Uh, so yes, it was intellectual forced labor, 
to say that it's, it wasn't written for the resistance doesn't mean that the text doesn't have moments of resistance. And uh, the text, as was common at the time, marks every Jewish author with a J, with a Yot for Yude. Uh, and I say every Jewish author, it's both contemporary authors they use and uh, Joseph Senfeit. <laughs> But but I think what Beck does, he he manages to write this type of text in a way that still preserves some of his own ideas. And again, it's hard to know who exactly wrote what. But for example, he writes about the success of Jewish missionizing and the diaspora, which is consistent with his 1905. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does grapple when it comes to the present right and the question of okay, Jews and the rise of the National Socialist Movement. He does uh, continue to celebrate the Zionism, which we can talk about uh, maybe later. So the text does have moments that are very consistent with Beck's thought, uh, and it doesn't really have moments that are, we can just say, oh, this is just simply the Nazi gaze. That's not what's going on, even though it was very likely intellectual forced labor. And to the question maybe of why it was never published, it's there are actually documents in the Leo Beck archives that debate it, including one person who knew Beck uh, when he's just to comment on the manuscript uh, early on. He says some sentence here, sentences here could not have been written by Beck because there's no way he would have adopted this type of perspective. Hmm. I don't think that's true, but I think his shock is understandable. And the text itself is, of course, Outdated, it was written very hastily in less than a year to produce 1,200 pages. So there's no real, except scholarly value to think about and the time, there's no real value in reproducing it as a whole. Yeah. So we now move to what must have been the most difficult part of Beck's life in uh, the winter of 1943. He's deported uh, to Theresienstadt. Uh, where he lives and continues to serve as a leader until he's eventually released and he actually survives. But tell us a little bit about this period. What did uh, Leo Beck, what do we know about this period? What did Leo Beck uh, think and write and talk about and how did he survive? So these are two very different questions. What did he think and talk and write about and how did he survive? Right. How did he survive is is somewhat unlikely because people he's age at this point is uh, an elderly man usually did not survive. Their survival rates in the ghetto were very low. Beck did receive uh, conditions that were favorable by comparison with other inmates. And that's again, I don't think, I think what I'm trying to do is by saying that I'm not saying, oh, we had a breeze in the ghetto, right? It was still the residence of the ghetto, it was still horrible. But I think it's important also to recognize this type of privileges. He had an apartment of his own. Uh, and he didn't write a lot about life in the ghetto. Uh, he was very cautious about it. But one of the places in which he writes about it is uh, in a short preface to Adler's famous book about Theresienstadt. And Adler, of course, is himself a survivor. And there, one of the things that Beck mentioned as the horse of the ghetto is the overcrowding. Uh, 
And of course, if you think that this is one of the horrors, then having an apartment of your own with your with the same May Dorchapsky uh, who came with you from Berlin, that's a huge advantage. So she, to an extent, enabled his activity. There's no back without those conditions in the ghetto. Right. He, he takes more of an insider-outsider position when it comes to the official work of the Council of Elders, or the Judenrat. Uh, so he does have a role, but he's not active. Uh, he gives primarily uh, a lot of Zellensurge, uh, a lot of spiritual care, and he lectures. He lectures a lot, uh, because as we know, Therese is to ghetto for various reasons, including being served as a model ghetto, but including the type of people who came to the ghetto, uh, had very rich cultural life. And we actually have a list of Beck's lectures, and they cover the entire gamut from a Second Temple Judaism all the way to, uh, I think he lectures on Hermann Cohen, he lectures on Spinoza, apparently so popular he has to do it twice. Uh, unfortunately, A, because he might not have had notes, but B, because paper is fragile and scarce. Uh, we don't actually have many surviving lectures. We have one full lecture called Geschichtsschreibung, or historiography, or the writing of history. And then I think I managed to reconstruct based on the timetable of the lectures and uh, some archival materials in the Jewish Museum Berlin, I managed to reconstruct at least one or more aspects that could have been. Because one of the, the sources in Berlin is uh, is interesting because these are notebooks uh, called Judentumskunde. It was apparently just a circle in which Beck lectured. Mm -hmm. So we have, at times, it looks like someone just took notes. And in other cases, uh, in other cases, you actually could imagine that these are back worlds after having read enough of it. And what, what does he say? What does what does he have to say? So in the surviving lecture, and in general those lectures, I think he's very consistent actually with the idea of empire. Hmm. Uh, and he writes about two modes of history. There's the Western or Greek mode of history, which he thinks from Herodotus all the way to Marx and Spengler. And he says this is pessimist mode of writing history. And it's pessimist because it's concerned with power and you always see power collapses. That's an important distinction in his thought from uh, 1905 onward is a distinction I identify between macht and craft or between power, physical power, violence, and spiritual energy. So he thinks empires and Christianity very often is associated with empire are using macht and Judaism uses craft. So this is one direction, and the other mode of writing history is the prophetic one. And of course, you can say, well, prophets are looking to the future, but they are also, based on this romantic idea of Schlegel, they are also, of course, backward historians. And he says what the prophets, when the prophets look at the edifices of power, they see that it's actually just the collapse of power is not necessarily a bad thing, because empires that are grounded only on power are bound to collapse. And empires that have more, that have craft, that has the relation to ethical monotheism, will survive. Now, this is not only consistent with this view of the prophets and with the views of empire. In writing this in 1944, the context 
couldn't have been lost on his listeners, right? Even this, this too shall pass, right? Uh, so as a religion of optimism, which he thought Judaism was, uh, this is almost performing the argument that religion, that Judaism is a religion of optimism or the prophetic mode is one of optimism. Mm-hmm. And he indeed survives and he relocates to London to live with his daughter, correct? Correct. And then uh, he becomes a major figure in in Britain, but also he goes to New York. So he goes to uh, the new center of Jewish life uh, at the time. And he also sees a new world order. So as you mentioned at the very beginning, there is a, a, a bifurcated structure, power structure in the world with the two blocks, but there is also a... a a new a new Jewish state that just just emerged. How does Lebeck situate himself within this new matrix of power and this emerging Jewish existence in the world? Yes, yeah, so it's not an obvious choice on philosophical or leadership terms to go to London, right? In fact, one of his uh, former colleagues, Yahuda, is then in New York writes to him, your place is either here or in Palestine. Mm. But of course, at this point, he's, as I said, his wife died in the 1930s. That's where his only daughter is. That's where, where he relocates. And in this period, he starts thinking about it while he writes in Berlin. But he really shifts gears, I would say, uh, to think about Jewish history. And he thinks about Jewish history it is bifocal. Writers have always having two centers. So in the ancient period, it was he thinks it was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and then it was Babylonia and Palestine, and then it's Sephardi and Ashkenaz. And he thinks in our era, these are the two, the two focal point of Jewish existence. It's Palestine and later the state of Israel, and it's the United States. And when he comes to the United States, not just to the United States, he's really a statesman without a state. So when he comes in 1948 for the American Jewish cavalcade, which was an attempted kind of Jewish revival of the reform movement, he meets the president in the White House. He opens Congress uh, with a prayer, which is the first non-American rabbi to ever do that. He meets mayors and dignitaries every place he lands. So he's really treated as this moral figure. and I think his understanding of uh, both global politics and of Jewish life uh, is changing because of those historical circumstances. Uh, so why do we start with the global politics? In the global politics, as I said, the two superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States, he's very clear. And again, I think that's consistent with his views about Bolshevism and communism from early on. So this is uh, he thinks uh, communism and Bolshevism are godless, not completely inaccurate in certain times. <laughs> uh, and because of that, they are antithetical to Judaism. They are the enemies of Judaism. Mm. So when he writes this letter in 1933 about uh, fighting Bolshevism, he says a Jew who converts to Bolshevism is an apostate, <laughs> uh, which is the harshest uh, in the Jewish vocabulary. 
And I think there's no reason to assume this was just pragmatic. I think he absolutely believed in it. If religion is the foundation of morality in his view, then this is immoral. And he thinks of the United States as, which at the time was also going through its own, of course, uh, religious revival, right? Or religious focus is opposite the Soviet Union. He thinks the United States is Atlas carrying the world. He thinks because it's a place of religion, that's how the UN should be led. So he's very clear in his support of the United States. And of American and uh, Jews in Palestine and then in the state of Israel. He thinks they are serving as two others I mentioned. So the American poll is the more universalist one. It's a poll that because they are part of this big culture, and he writes about it in terms of, oh, it's a broad land, so the people are coming here, and people used to come here young, so they come without a past. Uh, so this is kind of the more universalist tendency, the more open tendency, and uh, and the people in Palestine should remind, uh, of course, of the deep history and connection to the land, but also of, say, the particular or national aspect. So he thinks the two can work only together, is his belief. He believes the people in Palestine without this universalist Jewish ethics uh, are bound uh, to become chauvinistic. Uh, and he thinks the people in the United States without the reminder of the national might become too assimilationist mm -hmm. uh, or might lose their particular aspect. So that's why the two poles are so important in his thought. So he's, he is also an American Jewish thinker in a way. I mean, he contributes to this kind of, uh, to the constitution of, of American Judaism. That's interesting. I, I don't think necessarily of him as an American Jewish thinker uh, because he does engage ideas about America. Uh, and he is, of course, very influential in the sense of people remember him, you know, I think Mordechai Kaplan and Emil Sackenhain and Fagan was a student and uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. So all these people definitely had connections to Beck. But to what extent can we think of him as an American thinker, the fact is he did not live in the States and uh, and he did not necessarily write directly from an American position. He saw the value of America or the United States and he saw the value of Jewish American life. So to return, right. just to come full circle to the missionizing, yeah. he thought, for example, in the 1940s or 1948 that uh, this is where the Jewish missionizing should be because it's the more universalist open. He right. thought places like the Jewish Theological Seminary, the Hebrew Union College, these are the places from which the missionaries would go. Now, of course, we can say the fact that he didn't go anywhere <laughs> shows that maybe he wasn't really as influential in this regard, but rather more influential as a symbol of morality rather than his actual teaching. Although I must say... American Judaism is a very well known, became such a central, had such a central figure in American popular culture and so forth that I, I mean, there is an aspect, not in a, not in a hard sense, but a very soft way that it became very popular to be a Jew. But, but, but let's, let's leave it because we enter an entire new discussion and 
I think it's uh, it's time to uh, come to the concluding part of your uh, discussion in the book. At the end of the book, you discuss uh, Leobeck's legacy, and you also already mentioned the name Leobeck is connected to so many institutions and and uh, and prizes and and positions. And uh, I mean, it's it, it's clearly something that people feel comfortable to associate themselves uh, is the name Leobeck, and you discuss it at the end of the book, and you ask whether. To what degree is it a continuation of the legacy? How does how does this legacy persist? What is the relationship between the institution, the prizes, and the person himself? So it depends when you ask me. <laughs> On my more uh, melancholic days, <laughs> okay, I to say that there is not necessarily a lot of connection, right? Because sure, he was a rabbi and he was a communal leader and he was a this important political figure, really. But he was also a thinker. And I think the thought is not necessarily the part that is always stressed. Uh, so in the in the epilogue to the book, I really try to think, let's look at three institutions that are named after Beck and see what they tell us about different aspects of his legacy. Mm-hmm. So one institution is the Leo Beck Temple in Los Angeles. And uh, Leonard Berman, uh, who was the rabbi there, uh, was very much what we would call today uh, a social justice warrior. So if we try to think about the legacy of Beck's ethical monotheism, resistance to violence, he seems to be a representative of this trend. Another institution is uh, the Leo Beck Institute in New York which is, of course, this amazing uh, archive of German Jewry named after Beck during his lifetime. And this represents really both the legacy of which Beck was a part, because uh, as Eva Reisman wrote after Beck, the historian after Beck passed away, he was a symbol of German Jewry, right? Uh, but as Beck himself wrote, Lawrence have no nutrition value. Meaning if we just think about this crowning without actual substance, then what is it? Uh, so I think this institute does a, an amazing work in terms of preserving the preserving the legacy of German jewelry. So in this sense, this it takes more the, the Beck as a political communal leader seriously. The third aspect is, uh, is the Leo Beck house which is uh, where it all started, where I first started thinking about Beck. And among, uh, so the Leo Beck House is where the Hochschule for Research of the Student, this higher institution of Jewish learning. In Berlin. Was where Beck, in Berlin, where Beck taught for many years. Uh, in fact, one of the last teachers there until it closed by the Nazis. Uh, and that's today, among others, the Leo Beck House houses the Zentralrat der Deutschen Juden, the Central Council of Jews in Germany. And it's interesting to think about how they use not necessarily Beck's name, but the moral position of Jews in Germany today. Uh, and I'm not always convinced that it is done in ways that are consistent with Beck's philosophy, shall we say. I can't, of course, speak for someone who has been for many decades, not with us. Uh, but if you ask me to find kind of the connections and the differences, this is where the discrepancy 
uh, sometimes becomes evident because, uh, and we see it in various debates that are raging in Germany, uh, such as the World Archidem Bembe debate, uh, which I write about in the book about whether this leading post-colonial, decolonial thinker is uh, anti-Semitic or not, which is of the harshest accusation you can raise in Germany. And I was interested in particularly this debate because uh, this is one case where suddenly the colonial legacy, question of colonialism, emerges and the way the Jewish question and the colonial question seems once again intertwined, but in a very different way. Another uh, aspect, I should say I, of course, finished the book long before October 7. I'm not sure that today I would have called my introduction Jewish and colonial questions, if not only for pragmatic reasons. But I think what's uh, interesting is these questions are intertwined. uh, They are intertwined in the discussions. And that becomes very evident in contemporary discourse in Germany about Israel. And Beck was not afraid to also offer critique of Jews using violence in Israel, or this very famous uh, op-ed with, not very famous, I should say, I found it very interesting. He wrote it in a very popular thing, would be more accurate. Uh, He wrote an op-ed with Albert Einstein in 1948, uh, in which they decried Jewish violence in Palestine, and that's just before the state was founded. He supported probably something that uh, would have we would call today by national state or a confederation. Yeah. Now we might say he was naive, these are different circumstances, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you are asking what was his vision at the time, it seems pretty clear upon the evidence that that's, that's what it was. So in this sense, there's a big discrepancy. Yeah, I was pretty amazed to discover that the Zentralrat der Juden Deutschland is still called the Zentralrat der Juden Deutschland. I didn't know this. It was it uh, kind uh, of harkens to a past that I thought that I thought didn't exist anymore. So for me, it was a surprise. I, I think uh, a colleague of mine uh, once said that uh, that it's actually very appropriate. That it's always a reminder that it's not it's not business as usual. This is not German Jews right anymore. Especially if you look at the culture of the community. All right. Okay. No, I'm not. I'm not criticizing it. I was just. Yeah. I was just surprised. I didn't know this because. It's it's a very it's a very poignant choice. Tell us very shortly about your next project. Now that this is done, what are you working on now? Well, I'm actually working on something completely completely different. Uh, maybe I need a break from Jewish thought for a bit. Yeah, but I do keep publishing on it. I actually work on a book on Jewish museums because I work at the Jewish uh, Museum Berlin. And it's a comparative study of Jewish museums, both. Uh, among themselves, so both big national museums and small communal museums mm-hmm. across at least three continents, uh, and but also comparing Jewish museums to non-Jewish museums. So what's the relation between indigenous understanding of mm-hmm. museums and Jewish museums? What's the relation between black museums, the black history and cultural museums and Jewish museums? So I'm very excited about this project. Sounds fascinating. Thank you so much for uh, discussing your book with us. Uh, we were sitting and talking with Yanni Feller and about his 2023 book that came out actually a few months ago titled 
the Jewish Imperial Imagination, Leo Beck, and German Jewish Thought. Yadiv, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.